Hello everyone, I'm Giulio Prisco and in this episode of the Turing Church podcast, I am in conversation with philosopher Eric Steinhardt, who is one of my favorite uh, philosophers. Uh, good to see you, Eric. Hello. Hello, good to see you. Great. So I'd like to start uh, with um, a discussion of uh, your last book uh, uh, titled Believing in Dawkins, the New Spiritual Atheism. Well, you call it spiritual atheism, while well, I prefer to call it spiritual naturalism, and it is very close to my own religion, which seems a kind of strange to say. Uh, I do highly recommend your book. The only thing I don't like about the only things that I don't like about it are the uh, title and uh, some kind of uh, militant antagonism to traditional religion that I think is uh, unnecessary and uh, even uh, counterproductive. Anyway, the first thing that uh, I'd like to ask you is whether Richard Dawkins said anything at all about your book, and in this case, what? Um, as far as I know, no. Um, generally, uh, when you write a book about a living author, you another living author, in this case Dawkins, you don't have any contact with them. So, uh, no. No. Uh, I kind of suspected that. At the same time, I suspect that uh, you must have been uh, criticized uh, by others, or maybe even by Dawkins, even if you don't know it, for interpreting Dawkins in a way that offers uh, too much consolation to believers and uh, religious people. And uh, one of the examples, the main example that I have in mind, is when you note that Dawkins frequently affirms that there is no life after death. But uh, you say that uh, this is inconsistent with his own convictions. I kind of agree. Uh, Dawkins, you say, should have uh, argued that uh, false religious theories of life after death can be replaced by more uh, plausible scientific theories of uh, life after death. Uh, I do completely agree with this, but I kind of suspect that uh, Dawkins uh, wouldn't, and some of his uh, followers wouldn't uh, as well. Did you get any criticism along uh, these lines? Uh, no, I have not. Uh, I don't see, I mean, so there were a lot of, a lot of questions in there or uh, statements in there. And the first one was that, um, you know, what atheists regard me as, as providing too much consolation for believers. Well, I guess if believers means Christian believers, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure what that means. I mean, there are lots of other religions besides Christianity, as you know, and there are new religions too. Um, it would be hard for me to see that there's uh, any consolation for Christians in the book in the sense that it's uh, Dawkins is very opposed to the Abrahamic religions, including Christianity. Um, and the book reflects that. I don't see why, uh, you know, life after death would be, um, I mean, part of the point of the book 
is to argue against uh, Christonormativity, which takes Christianity as normative or standard or as defining the problems in the space of solutions to these kinds of questions. Um, you know, Hindus, ancient Greek and Roman pagans, Buddhists, all have theories of life after death in various kinds, which are very much non-Christian. Um, and so I don't see that why, uh, and, and of course, transhumanists and, um, you know, people who think of these uh, religious ideas in more computational terms also have theories of life after death. And, you know, from uh, Hans Moravec uh, to uh, Nick Bostrom, right, there's no, uh, it, to be Christonormative would be to say that Christianity has, you know, possession of this idea of life after death. It's a Christian idea. And if I were to affirm it then, or think Dawkins is affirming it, that makes me more similar to Christians. And that's just false. You know, Christianity does not possess this idea. It does not belong to them. Uh, it's an idea that uh, belongs to everybody. And in my point of view, right, what I argue in the book, as well as the, my previous book, Your Digital Afterlives, is that life after death is, is, should be de-religionized. It's just an issue for, uh, as, I would, as I've put it, for theoretical comp computer science. You know, the brain is a computational process. There's no reason why computational processes can't be moved from one uh, hardware substrate to another. And this has nothing to do with Christianity. It's completely independent. Um, so I, I don't see that, that uh, you know, but that, that was the sort of the first part of that question. So I don't see that, that there's any, um, you know, I mean, if Christians were to embrace this idea, if they were to embrace more computational approaches to life after death, I've got no argument against that. I have no objection to that. Um, but the, yeah, getting away from the Christonormativity and thinking that, that this idea belongs to them, uh, it just doesn't, and it never has. Um, but you also asked about Dawkins' own uh, you know, consistency, uh, and Dawkins says lots of things uh, he's often, I mean, the book is, is a critical a philosophical examination of Dawkins and also developing what I, what, you know, I, I'm happy to call it spiritual naturalism, as you called it. I mean, the titles of books are chosen by publishers, uh, not by authors. And so um, probably spiritual atheism sells more books, which is also fine with the author, um, you know, uh, but uh, spiritual atheism is, is fine too. And so, you know, Dawkins, like a lot of atheists of, of his generation, um, I might put Dan Dennett in there too, Sam Harris a little less, and, and certainly the Four Horsemen and uh, Chris Hitchens, uh, about the same, you know, have a, have a kind of allergic reaction um, to uh, Christianity where it's just without thinking, if Christians say something, they'll just say the opposite. And it's like, wait a minute, your own things you have said uh, point to, uh, in this case, this particular case, as in others, point to a very Dawkinsian theory of life after death, which um, you know goes, be begins all the way back with the Selfish Gene book right, in which genes have this kind of immortality, they're pieces of information copied from cell to cell, uh, from organism to organism, you know, uh, potentially immortal. 
well, okay, just extend that reasoning to brains uh, or extend that reasoning to the entire body and, and also things a little bit more uh, deeply that Dawkins says about complexity. If what he says about complexity is true, then it really has to be the case that um, there has to be an evolutionary sequence of universes. If, if what he says about, about complexity is true, our universe is very complex, and that means that it um, was produced in a sequence of increasingly complex universes and evolutionary lineage. Um, and this, again, is just reading really straightforwardly things that Dawkins says all over the place. And that would certainly seem to imply that our universe is followed by a number of uh, descendant offspring universes. And if complexity has follows the Dawkinsian account, the most complex thing, the more complex something is in our universe, the more likely it's going to be preserved very accurately in the next universe. Uh, that follows from Dawkinsian principles about complexity, right? If you lose, right, complexity is very fragile. He calls it improbable. He's right, right? Complex things are highly improbable. And the more complex something is, the more improbable it is. So if complexity is going to continue to increase or be preserved, then the complex things in our universe have to be preserved with great fidelity. Because the more complex something is, even small changes very rapidly destroy complexity. And this is all Dawkins, it's not me. So, you know, there's an argument there. And maybe it's not a great argument. That's not essentially for me to decide. Maybe it's not a great argument. Maybe it is a great argument. But Dawkins just is blind to being able to see this, right? Because the only, the only theory, this is the Christo-normativity, which I think completely infects all of contemporary Anglophone atheism. Um, Oh, Christians say it's about this weird soul. It's about some heaven and hell. And that's the only theory that they seem to be able to understand. And if that one's false, then, then they're all false. And that's just bad reasoning. So um, yeah, one of, my, one of my constant complaints about uh, contemporary and you know, Anglophone atheism is it's, it's so Christonormative. And I often suspect, as an increasing number of people say, that it's a kind of Protestantism. You know, it's a negative or apophatic kind of Protestantism, which would explain a lot of, of why they make the kinds of claims they do. But there you go. That was kind of hopefully a bit of an answer to, to several, uh, several points that you raised. I understand and I agree with uh, most of what you said. I guess uh, um, I suspected that, that uh, I guess, uh, when I suspected that you must have received many, uh, a lot of criticism, um, I guess I had in mind exactly this uh, uh, very negative reaction to anything that sounds like religion. Uh, that sounds like religion uh, at all, that uh, some of uh, today's uh, so-called militant atheists and some of uh, Dawkins' followers immediately have 
when uh, they hear, for example, uh, a philosopher talking about uh, the very theoretical possibility of life after death, it kind of uh, seems to me that they must interpret this uh, as a, you know, siding with uh, uh, the enemy. You see what I mean? That, you know, if you say something that looks so much like religion, then uh, you are not uh, a good atheist and you are not uh, one of our uh, tribe. That's what I have in mind. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, first of all, I, I haven't received much of that kind of criticism. I think 10 years ago or 12 years ago, uh, I might have. I think a lot of, you know, atheists have moved on from that. And I think, uh, as you know, and something that I would, you know, have written about elsewhere, uh, I would just turn to transhumanism and say, look, you know, the, the transhumanists have these other ideas. And so if somebody says that, if somebody thinks that religion is just Christianity, I'm just going to call them a Christian. And I call atheists Christians all the time. Right. Right. And oftentimes, um, you know, I'll say, no, you're the Christian because you can't think outside of Christian concepts that's and categories. Very, that's, a, that's a very good <laughs> That's a really excellent point, I believe. Well, uh, well, of course, you realize that even among those who call uh, themselves uh, transhumanists, there is a very strong and very instinctive knee-jerk reaction when they hear someone discussing uh, scientifically the possibility of life after death, because... Um, you know, they don't want to even consider that because it sounds uh, too much like uh, religion to them. And I understand that your uh, answer to them would be that uh, this is a misunderstanding that uh, stems from identifying religion with Christianity, right? Right. Right. I mean, I think that... Uh... Even if you look at uh, what just uh, was done, the experiment that was just done, I don't know if you, you know about this, uh, with Daniel Dennett and GPT-3, you know, GPT-3, yes. the large language model, uh, artificial intelligence, where they, uh, gave, they, they did a fine tuning of GPT-3 with Daniel, all Daniel Dennett's philosophical writings. Did you hear, hear, read about this experiment? I did, I did. Yeah, and so uh, they trained it and they got this trained GPT-3, this fine-tuned, you know, artificial Daniel Dennett to answer questions about, that were asked about Dennett's philosophy. And, uh, and I took part in this experiment and because uh, I've read, you know, thousands of pages of Dennett. And uh, I did pretty well, which was to say I did slightly better than chance. And in, in fact, um, professional philosophers were not able to distinguish between GPT-3 and Daniel Dennett. So there we go. We got our, you know, we got Daniel Dennett, his, his philosophical brain. You know, he could die and this GPT-3 thing would still be able to be Dan Dennett. Now, now that's kind of, a, it's, it's a little silly. I mean, the GPT-3 is still a long way away from, exactly. you know, human artificial general intelligence. But it's a proof of concept. I mean, it, it shows that this is not 
uh, it's not absurd, right? I mean, in presuming that the you know large language models get better, brain simulation gets better, um, we can gain access to more information. This is all; these are all transhumanist arguments, right? All the way back to Moravec in 1988. Yes. You know, scan scan brains get more information from everybody's life on the on the web and internet and recording. Um, these things are going to get more and more accurate to the point where questions about difference don't really make a difference. So I don't see that. So I, I really do think that. And in fact, that's where I was really initially, you know, with uh, that book, Your Digital Afterlives, said, look, these um, technological approaches, uh, computational approaches to life after death are perhaps surprisingly practical. You know, even if I can make the philosophical argument that, you know, in theory, um, they can work. I've been surprised. I was surprised to see the Dennett thing work so well, you know, in, in 2022. I thought it wouldn't be till a lot further down the road. So I, I just point to things like that and say, like, you know, I, I don't understand what the counter argument would, you know, oh, this is too religious. I don't see making a, a copy of Dan Dennett's brain inside a, you know, GPT-3. I, if that's religion, that's a fine religion with me. You know, so. Right. Uh, uh, by the way, it's interesting that there is this new, even more uh, recent example of uh, GPT-3, like uh, between brackets, artificial intelligence, that uh, there is a, this uh, Google engineer who has been fired after right. that, I say that uh, a Google language model is uh, self-aware, uh, conscious like a person. Um, I do agree that you know, all these things are advancing very fast. I'm not very optimistic in the prospect of real human-like uh, artificial intelligence uh, next week. That would be too soon, but uh, I guess we'll see something like that uh, for sure before the end of the century. However, there is a difference between uh, the um, kind of resurrection that you have when you have done something to preserve an individual, for example, uh, uploading the mental structure of Daniel Dennett onto an AI, and the kind of resurrection that you have when you have done nothing of the sort, but uh, um, something else, not necessarily human agency acting now, uh, manage to resurrect people anyway. In fact, this uh, brings me to uh, the next uh, question that I have in mind, is that for those who have not read Believing in Dawkins or your previous book, Your Digital Afterlives, could you give a very short summary of uh, your speculation on uh, plausible scientific theories of life after death? Sure. Yeah, there are. I mean, there are just a, there are a few main ones that have been discussed in the in the literature. The first one is, is very much like the Dan Dennett example, where you take, you know, you take everybody, somebody's whole digital life, 
you know, everything they've typed into Facebook, all mm -hmm. their writings, uh, if they have photographs, everything they've sort of left behind or generated in terms of information. And you just upload that into some kind of AI platform like GPT-3 or GPT-47, whatever it may be. And you recreate a model of that person. That's the sort of most trivial kind. Um, and probably at this point, the most practical, uh, especially as, again, people are leaving behind larger and larger um, digital, uh, you know, digital wakes, digital, uh, digital streams behind them of all this data we're generating. It's, it's remarkable. Um, you know, my, my grandparents probably left a few, what, a few megabytes of data behind them in the form of old black and white pictures. I, you know, I, even I, I've generated like, I mean, hundreds of gigabytes, if not, not probably at least a terabyte of, of personalized data Right. And that's a lot. And it, it might not be in this case, some of these things might be more accessible than one thinks, because being humans, we tend to think I'm so unique. I'm, I'm a snowflake. I'm a super individual. Nobody else is like me. It might not be the case that I'm so um, unique that I can't be very accurately recreated from a small amount of data. Maybe a terabyte is enough. Right, because maybe the parameter space isn't that big. So that's a that's the first thing, right? Just getting all this data you've left behind and uploading it into a, you know, an AI model like the Dennett uh, artificial Dennett in GPT three. That's the first kind of case. A second kind of case is where you you know really just an extension of the first, where you do okay brain scanning and brain uploading, that kind of thing. That's just really an extension where you're getting more data from the body, right? <laughs> I mean, and it might all, one of the things we didn't really talk about there with those kinds of things is um, right now I can get a full uh, genetic scan, right? And that's information too that could be used to finely tune an AI model, right? You could say, look at all these genes that function in Steinhardt's brain or Dennett's brain or your brain, and that can be fed into a model as well. Right, so there's there's lots of data that can be used, um, and I think the brain uploading is just an extension of of that. The next uh, thing would be to think about things like uh, Nick Bostrom and and before him, I mean Hans Moravec is really the revolutionary figure with all yes. of this, particularly since he wrote that book Mind Children, and he himself was uh, possibly dying um, of us testicular cancer, and I didn't so. Know that. Yeah, yeah, he was. He had been diagnosed with testicular cancer, and uh, his and wife was. That would be twenty plus years ago when he wrote My Children. Well, he wrote it in the in the mid nineteen eighties, the early nineteen eighties, so forty so years more, ago. Right, so it's almost forty years ago, and he recovered, and uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, but he I'm thought, you know, I'm a robotics scientist. I'm building these artificial animals. Why, why couldn't I build another one that's like me? And he thought about all these ways that um, this kind of thing could happen. One of the more interesting ones, I think, is the, hypo the simulation hypothesis, right? That says things like, okay, we are, um, I hate to use the word simulation because, you know, video games generally aren't simulations, right? They're their own worlds. But if we are actually, um, you know, characters uh, in a computer generated universe, right? Then, 
whatever computer is generating this universe can be keeping an exact recording of me. And that recording could be used to, you know, produce another Eric Steinhardt in the next iteration of the video game. Or uh, more intriguingly, as, as Moravec suggested, and um, this was actually done, right? As Moravec suggested, well, if you're, if you're a character in a video game, the video game engineers, you know, they monitor you, they record all your data of your life in the game. And then they could actually use that data and plug it into a robot in their world outside the game. And he called that promotion. So that's another kind of technological theory of life after death that if we are in fact in a, in a software generated universe or computer generated universe, um, that data file could be put into a robot, uh, the mind file as he called it, and then Kurt's file called it, could be put into a robot in the actual um, universe where this, this software you know, simulation is the video game is running. Uh, so that was actually done. These guys that I think, uh, forget if it was Carnegie Mellon, doesn't matter. They actually built, you know, a simple game with these simple organisms, had them live. And then, you know, took a recording of one of them because they were all individualized. There was, uh, you know, simulated evolution, stuff like that. Took a recording of one of them and built a little robot in their world that they programmed to behave exactly like this you know, what had been a software creature inside a computer. And so that's, again, proof of concept, right? It's, uh, a, who knows if we're actually living in a, a video game, a software universe, um, but it's certainly not unscientific or untechnological to think that way. And there are good reasons to think that too. Uh, so that would be the second main one, right? Promotion. And then the third one is just thinking uh, that I mentioned before that our universe is just one in a series of universes. Uh, arguments from complexity and from evolutionary theory would say, look, you want complex organisms, you need evolution, you need lineages of organisms and information is copied from organism to organism, right? From you know parents to their offspring. And the same is gonna happen with universes at the cosmic scale. And if information is copied, well, then in the next universes, there are going to be copies of me. Yeah, and they might be modified in certain ways. They can't be modified too much or, you know, the complexity building process is destroyed. Can I But, just interrupt yeah, you one moment? Sure. Information is copied. Uh, at this point, many people, I think, would ask information is copied by whom? Or by what? Uh, it's not copied by anybody. I mean, information gets copied in biology. It's not copied by right. anyone, right? There's a process. Um, now, but, uh, might, yeah. look, it's not uh, copied by someone, but uh, it is copied uh, by uh, something, which is uh, uh, I mean, the basic uh, laws or uh, physics and biology are what. Uh, copies information in this case huh? and that right. uh, I think uh, you would answer that is also the case for the copying of information from uh, parent universe to child universe right it is something built in the laws of nature that's correct it's a natural process I mean we can you know there can be various discussions about the details there 
But at a philosophical level, I mean, I'm, I'm an old computer scientist. I'm a computationalist. I think that universes are generated by a computation too, even if it's not like a video game kind of thing, but entire, the whole process of nature is a computation. Um, Now, obviously I could be wrong about that, but from a computational perspective, universes are just generated by a recursive algorithm, um, you know, or an iterative process of some sort. And so there doesn't need to be any who, there doesn't even need to be a what, Right. It's the law. The laws of nature themselves ensure that this uh, process of cosmological evolution happens. Right. right. Uh, myself, I have uh, always thought that, uh, in particular, the simulation cosmology that you just mentioned is uh, not only scientifically sound but uh, it is also religiously sound in the sense that I myself at least uh, always found it uh, completely indistinguishable from traditional religion as far as the really important things uh, are concerned. I mean, uh, in a simulation cosmology, we don't have uh, the exact uh, Christian mythology. We don't have uh, any of the mythologies of other established religion, but you know, uh, the core idea that uh, this, the reality of this universe is, uh, has been uh, built by something that lives in a higher level of reality. I mean, the concept is uh, the same. And the idea that this can offer a way to resurrect uh, people by copying them from this reality to the higher level reality is uh, exactly the same thing and we call uh, and we can call them heaven so uh, to me at least uh, the simulation cosmology says uh, exactly the same thing that Christianity says when we talk of the really important things uh, well, of course uh, not all computationalists would agree and not all Christian believers would agree. But to me, it has always been uh, exactly the same concept. But uh, well, um, in my schedule, we come to this point later. So please continue with uh, what you were saying. Sorry for interrupting. No, that's, that's fine. I think maybe that's, that's probably the, the sort of three main sorts of theories of computational theories of life after death. So uh, we can go to the next question, I think. Ah, yes, in fact, uh, um, this kind of the... Uh, uh, now, uh, you have given a short list of your speculations on uh, plausible scientific theories of life after death. What do you think Sir Richard Dawkins would say about uh, your speculations? Um, I mean, some of them he, he explicitly agrees with, right? He's, he's perfectly, um, you know, uh, perfectly happy with a lot of the uh, more concrete things. Um, he said things like he thinks, yeah, you could make a copy of someone in an AI, right? There's, there's nothing surprising about that. Um, he's also very well aware that you could take somebody's genetic code and uh, make a clone of them, right? 
Um, he discusses that at a variety of points. So you could take take my exact genetic code, make a clone of me, and uh, you know, would that be would that be me or not? Well, not really, sort of. Um, but he's aware of those kinds of physical copying processes, and he is aware of the simulation hypothesis uh, in the God delusion. Uh, I yes. think it's uh, actually pages ninety-eight to hundred or so. He discusses it several places, but he says he says it's a perfectly intelligible and um, you know sound idea. He can't disprove it, and that would make these things possible too, right? He uh, now he he does not think that that gives much. Um, you know, uh, hope or uh, uh, comfort to uh, to Abrahamists, because particularly, as you said, the mythology would be gone, right? You'd be left with some very abstract view that, oh, there are some agents that created a, created our universe. Oh, it's like God. Well, but it might be polytheism, right? I mean, thousands and thousands of people are required to make video games, so there must be thousands and thousands of gods in heaven. I mean, so it, it's not, you know, um, and there are going to be parallels with, with Hinduism or Buddhism as well. So it's not clear why, yeah, there's a generic structure there that resembles some of the, you know, more abstract philosophical parts of lots of religions. Uh, but Dawkins in his books, right, he's, he's well aware of, of most of these ideas. Right. Um, and again, some of which, I mean, some versions of the simulation hypothesis he finds a little far fetched. Other versions he says, you know, yeah, that this universe is, is computational, it's running on a computer. Um, we, you know, that's, it's really, it's, it's not really falsifiable. And there are, but there are good, plausible reasons to think that could be true. Uh, and it makes sense of a lot of things in, in a very scientific way. So um, he's aware of these things, but what his actual opinions are about them, he hasn't really said. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I have also read uh, in many places, like for example, in a New York Times interview about uh, 10 years ago, that he said that something that he also says in The God Delusion, that there are uh, very likely extremely advanced intelligences out there which would be indistinguishable from God, which uh, is what I think as well. Is that right. some, yeah, sometimes it's uh, good to hear uh, these things coming from Dawkins. Mm. Well, he says a lot, of, a lot of things people would think are weird because they don't read him. Right. You know, they just, he's some celebrity atheist and people think, I know what he says. I don't have to read him. Yeah. And, and there are little, there are also, he's written a lot of stuff mm -hmm. besides the big popular books. Um, he's engaged. And it's also funny because you find theologians or Christians who say like, oh, he hasn't engaged with theology. And yet, if you actually go look, he's written all sorts of articles in theological journals. You know, he wrote one in a debate with a theologian named Poole where he argues that, um, okay, fine, God is really complex. The only way you get complex things is by evolution. Uh, therefore, the only way you could have a complex God would be if there's an evolving population of gods. And he discusses this, you know, and you're like, oh, wait, Dawkins is saying there could be an evolving population of gods, you know, and it's like, yes, yes, he does. And so, 
Um, but you got to go in, you know, you're going into the, you're kind of going into the weeds here. You're, you're, you, you got to get down into the, and very, I think I'm like the only person who's done that, who's read all this stuff, you know. Well, so. not all, but I think I have read most of his books. Perhaps not all. I'm sure not all. Well, you got to read the articles, right? Because, yeah. you know, he was a professor and he wrote journal articles. So, right. In fact, uh, um, you know, I, um, I mean, I'm not a conventional believer, but well, when uh, people uh, ask me to make a binary choice between believer and uh, atheist, I tend uh, to choose to say that I am a believer. But, you know, all these things, uh, I don't find them uh, shocking at all. I mean, thousands of gods, evolving gods, computational gods. I mean, who cares if the result is the same? The result uh, being that uh, there is uh, something that uh, is pulling the universe toward a, a good state, as you say in the book. And maybe this uh, something can even ensure that uh, we will be resurrected in an afterlife. I mean, that's what I want. Who cares whether the my, uh, mythology of uh, any traditional religion is uh, still there? I mean, the important thing uh, is uh, what gets done. Sure. Uh, it's uh, something very nice that uh, you say in the book is that uh, the job that used to be done by a, a god can be done by the natural mechanism of the universe itself. That's right. uh, something that I like very much to hear. And in fact, uh, let's uh, leave religion aside for a while. I'm going to come back today and move to physics. Sure. In fact, um, I think the most interesting uh, parts of your book is when you discuss uh, concepts like uh, cranes that lift matter to greater heights of complexity and skewers of deep non-random factors in the laws of physics that favor uh, complexity. Uh, you say that uh, the cranes and the skewers could be powered by almost uh, non-thermodynamics. For example, some uh, version of uh, maximum entropy production uh, principles, or by more exotic, uh, purely informational principles at the roots of physics that maximize uh, uh, value production. Here, let me say that you sound like uh, Robert Persig, who said pretty much uh, the same things in different words. And you coin the term axiotropy, which means uh, value uh, growth for these things. Now, my question is, do we need radically new physics to make sense of axiotropy, or is uh, today's uh, physics uh, almost good enough? Uh, Schrodinger, in uh, uh, What is Life, speculated on uh, other laws of physics that should complement uh, non-physics if we want to understand life. Uh, and do you think 
that your axiotropy or uh, Schrodinger's other laws of physics could be just uh, incremental improvements to the physics we already know, or would they be entirely new physics? Um, that's a that's a great uh, question. Yeah, um, I don't think it's radically new physics. Um, in fact, I think the physics is very close to that. Um, and when I say very close, you know, some people might get the misimpression that um, people often have very bad bad understandings of physics. Uh, I study a lot of physics, and people think, oh, physics is settled. You know, I think, in fact, contemporary physics especially is a mess. Um, it, and so people are like, oh, the second law of thermodynamics. And you want to say, there's actually no such thing. There maybe is now. I mean, there were 47 different versions of the second law. And um, since the Dawkins book was published, I'll just mention this, right? Um, the second law, a, a very clear version of the second law has been deduced from axioms of quantum information theory. That just happened last year. It happened this year, earlier this year. You give me a, can you give me a reference on that? Uh, no, um, I'll refer you to, I could refer you to, a, a, you know, if you know that uh, webzine Quanta magazine. Um, yes. Yeah, they had a lovely article about it because it's, it's you know, it's dozens of people who have worked this out. Right. Uh, yes, I have seen um, many articles of this kind, but uh, you know, I have seen uh, uh, many of them, not just one. Right. So I'm uh, curious on what uh, exactly you have yeah. in mind. Would that be the theories of uh, Jeremy England by any chance? No, England will come into this to this point later, right? Because England's working at a much higher level. Um, but so thermodynamics, right? I mean, thermodynamics, first of all, uh, well, first of all, what's happening in contemporary physics is really is a revolution right now as we speak. And it's an informational revolution, yes. right? Where quantum theory is being rewritten in terms of information theory and uh, thermodynamical principles are being derived from information theoretic principles. There's lots of work, for instance, trying to derive fundamental forces like gravity or electromagnetism mm -hmm. from things like quantum entanglement, which is you know, information theoretic. Yes. And this program is generally known as, as it from qubit. Yes. Right. And ah, right. Right. It from it used so to that's be the, what you have in mind, exactly. That's right. And so the, the it from qubit program, right, we start to rethink quantum field theory in terms of information theory, start to think of the emergence of particles and other structures. There's a, a, a physicist, uh, Zhao Gang Wen, who writes a, a lot about this. Uh, there's lots of, I mean, this is, an, this is happening as we speak. I find it very exciting. Um, but what we find is, for instance, people have a very bizarre view of, of thermodynamics and entropy, for instance. You know, entropy is not disorder. That's not what entropy is. I mean, but I'd get technical now. Entropy is the measure of a measure of the flatness of a potential distribution. Okay, what did that mean? Well, so I mean, uh, people say, oh, thermodynamics, second law, entropy is always increasing, disorder is increasing, blah, blah. No, that's in fact completely wrong. Um, the second law seems to entail something like entropy is increasing, yes, 
but that entropy increases at it not only does does is entropy being maximized but the rate at which entropy is being produced is maximized so that's the maximum entropy production principle now the maximum entropy production principle has also been derived from the same information theoretic foundations as the recent work on the second law there's the issue isn't whether this is you know accepted science or something it is the issue is that there's still a lot of work to be done in making this precise right right there's like and there's lots of experimental questions too it's like well we've three or four versions mathematically of this thing what is the exact correct one well that science will do its work but it's not going to come up with something at least at this point it's not going to come up with something different it's going to be you know we're, we're tweaking the the little details here and the maximum entropy production principle says systems tend to maximize their entropy production rates. And it turns out, not surprisingly, that more complex dynamics produce entropy faster than less complex dynamics, right? And so this means immediately what the second law is doing is it's driving the evolution of complexity. Um, and it's making complexity grow. And now eventually, of course, all that complexity will be gone. But what all these things are doing, you know, stars, I mean, stars are pumping complexity into black holes, if you want to think of it that way. And eventually, it's all going to get pumped into the black holes. And that'll be that. But in the meantime, right, you've got at the center of our solar system, an extremely low entropy object, right, the core of the sun is about as low entropy as you can get. And this thing is, you know, pumping entropy into the black hole at the center of the Milky Way, right? And as it's doing that, the only way to do that is to generate more and more complexity around itself, right? Low, low complexity flows don't generate much entropy, right? So, okay. And this has all been worked out with, with great precision, yes. great physical precision, Right. So if, if we want to say, like, it's not entirely accepted, well, it is accepted. The details still need to be refined. So Marty Yushev and people like him and Dewar, they have versions of the maximum entropy production principle. Jeremy England, who you mentioned, he has a slightly different version, you know, and he says his ver version is better than theirs. They say, no, ours. But that's a debate right. yes. at the level of the detail. Right. It's not a level of the debate about the general principles. You think from the conceptual point of view, we are almost there and uh, the answer to the nature of the claims uh, lies in uh, thermodynamics and specifically in some or some other version of the maximum entropy production principle. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, the maximum entropy production principle is a kind of thing that you can state in English, right? And so, you know, systems tend to maximize their entropy production rates. Well, now we need a very precise mathematical definition of entropy, entropy production, all these things. And right, there's but, uh, would details this, there. Uh, would this be what, uh, like uh, some people say, a fourth law of thermodynamics? Or can it be derived uh, rigorously from uh, uh, the parts of thermodynamics? that we are uh, already familiar with? Or is um, it a new? Yeah, as far as I know, it's not, it's, it's not to new. To that. No, it's not new. it just follows from, I mean, I have to trust what the scientists are saying. 
um, and perhaps things could be revised, but people like Dewar who worked out the math, uh, a, a scientist named Dewar worked out a mathematical derivation of uh, a maximum entropy production principle from the second law. So most people seem to think that it's actually, you know, just the expression of the second law and the other, the other laws, the zero, first, second, third laws, right? Um, so I don't think it's new, and I, but I could be wrong. I'm not a scientist and I don't, I, I'll, I'll agree with whatever they say about it. Um, but it does seem like, uh, you know, people are starting to really think about these issues. They have been for the last 30 years. Um, you know, the thermodynamics of computation, right? The relations between, um, you know, information theory and thermodynamics and computation, which has become really, um, you know, the, the thing that really brought this home was the emergence of quantum computing, right? Once people realized, oh, quantum computers, and they also realized that, um, you know, entanglement is for real, right? It's not some, you know, bug in the system, you know, there's experimental confirmation of it. And um, it's far deeper and more general than one thinks. I think the big piece of the puzzle is going to be whether or not um, gravity can really be, this is what everybody wants, right? To derive gravity from uh, quantum information theory. Right. And see if they can yeah. do that. Well, uh, in fact, it's good that uh, you mentioned quantum information and uh, quantum computers, because you know when I think of uh, the status of our knowledge of physics right now and its uh, potential to explain all the things that we are discussing, its potential to make sense of axiotropy, I always think that, in fact, we have this uh, debate on the, what quantum mechanics mean that has been uh, going on uh, for a hundred years and doesn't show any sign of uh, being uh, settled one way or another. Uh, I do tend to think that uh, what quantum mechanics mean must be very relevant to all these things that we are discussing. And uh, well, I think we, you would agree on that, huh? don't you? Yeah, I mean, basically, I think, right. I think, um, I mean, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, the basic principles of quantum theory are being, uh, they are being rewritten in terms of information theory. And of course we don't, you know, I don't know. We don't know if that is gonna be a completely successful program. So far, it's it's a program that's shown um, amazing success, and uh, you know, hopefully, in my lifetime, I'll see whether this program really bears fruit or not. Right? Let's uh, hope so. The yeah. question that I would like very much to see an answer to in my lifetime is uh, on these things that also have been discussed from many centuries now on whether the universe is fully deterministic or not, which I think, you know, I like to read the works of all the scientists and philosophers who argue one way or another, uh, almost always disagreeing with each other. But I think it is still very much of an open question 
uh, no, ju uh, just like to hear uh, where uh, you stand on that, or are you agnostic as at this moment I am? Yeah, I think that um, first of all, the there's there's real problem there uh, with the concept of determinism is it's there's really no good definition of what that means. And um, if you look at, if you start to look at it and ask, well, what does it mean to say the universe is determined? Um, so far, there's really sort of only two answers to that. One is that, you know, given any complete state description, you know, there's like a, you know, primitive recursive algorithm that can produce all the subsequent states. And that, I don't know, but that doesn't seem to be a very powerful statement. Another is, you know, determinism is, is deduction, right? That given any, um, you know, complete description of the past, uh, one, you know, there's a deductive proof of any future state, right? Obviously it doesn't have to be a proof carried out by humans, just that there's, there's a proof in the second or, you know, first or second order predicate calculus of whatever future state one might name. And that also seems to be very poorly defined. Um, How would you define determinism? I have no idea. I mean, that's that as I, you know, at one point in, in writing a bunch of things I've been asked to write, you know, I started looking into this and, and said, you know, this is a, I, I used to think, you know, when I hadn't thought about it, that this was a pretty, pretty clearly defined notion. And then starting to, to research it, I came to the conclusion that this is a completely undefined concept. Um, or the, the definitions of the concept, either the computable or deductive model, are like really weak. And, uh, you know, people often say Newtonian physics is deterministic and more, it's not deterministic in any Thank of those senses. Right. Yeah, it's not. And, and so it's really not clear to me what it means to say the dynamics of a system are deterministic. I mean, I do get it. I get that the dynamics of the game of life are deterministic. I get it. Uh, yeah, certain, in fact, you know, that's but... uh, the same mental uh, strategy that I use to think about these things, which is to translate them in terms of elementary cellular automata, which, uh, you know, it makes thinking about these things easier because you can, you know, ignore real numbers, uh, cows. Yeah. You can ignore, ignore real physics. Yeah, and think of a simple uh, of a simple finite model with simple rules, the Wolfram approach. Uh, but uh, by the way, how do you like Wolfram's approach? I think, I think let me mention this other automata thing first, which is that you don't have to go much beyond, say, the game of life. If you just go to like, uh, you know, lattice gas automata, no. which are just cellular automata that implement very simple collision rules. You already have systems that are not deterministic in either a, you know, computability or deductibility sense. You know, there's just very simple modifications to the game of life, and and you already get yeah. something that doesn't work. Um, so Wolfram, I mean, I, Wolfram's interesting. I don't know what to think of. Uh, you know, again, these just seem to be scientific questions. His latest thing about graph rewriting. Uh, strategies for for physics. I mean, that's very interesting because graph rewriting is a really powerful. It's probably the most one of the most powerful techniques you can have mathematically for thinking about uh, dynamics. But does it have any physical reality? I it's not for me to say. I've I have no idea. It looks pretty. The stuff looks pretty that he has on his website. Right. 
Um, does it have any physical validity at all? I got, I have no idea, you know, no clue. Right. Huh? Okay, so as far as uh, physics is concerned, let's agree that we would like to see some answers to all that within uh, our lifetime. I think yeah, that would be best, nice. Yeah, that's the best we can say. Let's uh, go back to religion for a little while. And uh, I'm wondering whether your spiritual uh, naturalism could be formulated uh, in a way that is less antagonistic to established religions. And in general, you know, what do you think are the realistic uh, prospects for this uh, very interesting uh, worldview that you are building? Sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm, all, I'm interested in new religions. Right. I mean, I'm interested in new ways of um, being spiritual, new ways of being religious. And uh, as I mentioned before, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, uh, Anglophone atheism is a kind of, uh, you know, apophatic Christianity. It's negative theology. I'm going to I'm going to steal that from you. Uh, it's not even original with me, right? There's a whole lot of sociologists and other folks um, who have, uh, there's just a book and I'm blanking on the author's name, but I think I think it's Fraser um, called The Secret Sympathy, right? A whole book on um, how uh, Anglophone atheism is a particular version of Protestantism. I'm, I'm uh, Googling that as we speak. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, lots of people have observed this uh, more recently as they've reflected on what are the dynamics of, of uh, you know, uh, uh, Excuse me, could you say the title of the book again? It's called the secret, the secret, the Secret Sympathy. Secret. Secret Sympathy. Um, ah, hopefully right. I got that right. Here it is. Yes, 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 you did. I'm going to, I think I'm going to read that book. Uh, sorry yeah. for the interruption. Please no, problem. no problem. No um, problem. And so uh, I'm interested in ways of just getting, getting beyond that. Like I get frustrated with atheists who just want to talk about God because I don't want to talk about God. I don't, I don't believe in God and I don't, I, why would I talk about, I don't spend my days talking about leprechauns and unicorns, you know? Um, so I'd like to talk about the things that I do think exist and I would like to see the emergence of um, new forms of, uh, I'm hesitant to even use the word religion, but new forms of religiosity. And I think that certainly within the history of, of the West, uh, those forms exist, they have existed. Um, there was ancient paganism, there's new forms of paganism. Even if that's a problematic word, which it is for some people, there are new ways that people are, um, you know, putting these things into practice. There's atheistic pagans, atheopaganism. Um, there's, you know, there's a spiritual naturalist society. I, you know, I don't really make sense. Uh, yeah. Hold on. What is the spiritual naturalist society? Well, there's two groups that I mentioned there. The one is the atheopagan paganism group, right. which is an organized, a large uh, organized group. Um, and they've got a you know a website and various social media uh, channels and things like that. So they are atheistic pagans, and they um, do all sorts of fascinating things, right? And um, 
Then there are uh, humanistic pagans. There's a group called the humanistic pagans. There's, uh, there's the spiritual naturalist society, which has a website, right? It's easy to Google. Um, they're not so much an organized group as just people who are interested in spiritual naturalism. Um, so there are lots of little groups, some of which are the atheopagans aren't so little, um, but, and it's hard to make predictions across, you know, oceans and continents. Certainly religion is changing in the United States very rapidly, right? Um, Christianity is declining at, at an astonishing rate. There's obviously a very angry uh, back reaction to that uh, Chris, with Christian nationalists and things like that. I really doubt that there's anything they could do to stem this tide. Um, predictions are that even within, you know, uh, 20 years, uh, America could be a minority Christian nation. And what will emerge in the wake of that? Well, I don't know, right? I just don't know. It could be something that's very new, you know, like, okay, I'm a philosopher. And so I'm trained in ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. And I'll be like, oh, Plato, you know, and most people probably don't care about that. You know, they're like, well, some dead guy from thousands of years ago. Um, but you see all sorts of new ideas bubbling up all over the place. Um, again, there's, there's uh, various transhumanist, you know, organizations and things like that. Um, computational kinds of forms of spirituality. Obviously, like, you know, westernized Buddhism, you know, Stoicism is back. Um, I mean, I regard Stoicism as a pagan philosophy. Um, you know, so I, I just the, the creativity that's happening now is astonishing. Yes. Right. And knows. Yeah. And you know, in fact, uh, uh, all these uh, could be a new religions. But don't you think that perhaps uh, mm, it would be simple, in some sense, uh, to import this approach <laughs> within uh, more uh, traditional religions? I mean, uh, I have seen you giving a great uh, talk uh, once at the conference of the Mormon Transhumanist Association. And uh, you are also aware that there is a Christian Transhumanist Association, mm -hmm. which in my opinion represents uh, uh, a very interesting way to you know, build uh, some kind of bridge between uh, traditional religions and uh, these uh, new ideas that are coming out. Mm, you think there is some potential in that? I doubt it. Um, you know, again, I want to be cautious about uh, predicting social changes because those can be really wild and completely, you know, not conform to any of our expectations. Certainly, though, the trend, right, the trend lines for the older religions all pretty much point down. And Even Islam. How about Islam? Well, again, I mean, the one problem certainly with, with Islam is that it's very difficult to get accurate data, right? I mean, you know, the best data that I've seen comes out of places like Iran, where they say that, you know, and perhaps it's a similar thing, the politicization of Islam made people much less religious, so that in fact it's- Or much more religious. 
No, much less. Much less. Participation rates and things like that go way down. Um, but you can't, you know, even within the United States, it's very difficult to rely on any data here, right? Because, uh, I mean, certainly in the United States with freedom of religion, somebody can give a more honest answer, but they often don't. It's something known as the halo effect. Um, but what you see, right, um, with actual eyes on the ground is, um, you know, church attendance extremely declining um, and certainly the pandemic accelerated that to the point where um, even hardcore denominations like the Southern Baptists that once had seems to be just surviving all this right their attendance rates have, have plummeted um, and their youth retention rates are you know down sometimes in the single digits right and so um, you, you know, I mean, certainly across across vast swaths of the United States, you find nothing but empty and abandoned churches. So I don't. So what? But what will happen in the wake of that? I don't know. Right. I. It's just a. It. I would not have predicted a collapse like this would happen so fast in the United States. Maybe there'll be a counter reaction, a counter revolution, and it'll be swept away. Maybe people are just going to revert to all kind, you know, crystals and tarot cards and astrology and witchcraft, and it's just going to be a popular. They'll just be a messy, new agey, neo pagany mess, and people just won't really care about these big ideas of, of, or they some might care, but they'll turn to various sources. No, co there won't be a coherent, I think. The way that Abrahamic religions, the monotheistic traditions, provided a singular kind of coherent vision um, and said, this is the narrative, uh, even if we demythologize it. I doubt that, I mean, people just aren't going to be interested in that, right? They're going to be like, yeah, I combine crystals with yoga. Okay, well, I combine yoga with Buddhism or yoga with goats or Buddhism with astrology or they're going to do, you know, it's going to be a, a herd of cats and they're going to go wherever they want. That's what I think is the most likely uh, outcome, but we'll see. We'll yeah. see. And what is this thing with uh, uh, Burning Man? You seem to consider oh, yeah. it as something like an next generation service for spiritual naturalists. I think that, uh, again, Burning Man is, uh, and people often misunderstand that, especially, uh, you know, outside of the United States, or even in the U.S., people think, oh, it's a music festival, which it's not. I mean, it's nothing to do with, with music. Um, but uh, Burning Man is a transformational festival, one of the first and uh, oldest uh, so and largest. Um, you know, it's a festival in the desert where uh, you have all, I won't go into too much, don't need to go into too much detail, but... Um, do you go you to know, Burning Man? You know, I've never been. I was going to go during, and then the pandemic happened. Um, once I started getting interested in it, I thought I should go. And then there was the pandemic. And so my plans were um, ended. Uh, so, I, so we'll see. Uh, it's just started again. It was a two year hiatus and it just started back up this year. Um, and I'm not sure I'm prepared to like do all the traveling I would need to do to, to do that at this point. So we'll see. Um, 
but I don't, and I'm not particularly concerned with the details of Burning Man itself. It's just a model of something that, uh, from a you know an academic point of view, looks very religious, looks very ritualized. Very, um, there's a thing, right? You burn a figure of a man at the, you know, it, during it, and then at the end, which people often don't realize, the the climax is not burning the man; it's burning the temple. Right. There's a temple that's built. The temple is very interesting because the temple people, people write or put objects or written statements of their often their hopes and fears, you know, or memorial. They've lost someone, someone's died and a little memorial to the person who's passed away or or things that they say about my, themselves. You know, I'm fighting cancer. You know, hope I can beat cancer or I overcame, you know, uh, drug addiction or, you know, I'm overcoming a divorce or something, you know, they put all these very personal things, things they have to leave behind, things they want to overcome, things they're struggling with. And the temple gets filled with these things. And on the very last night of the festival that, you know, the, the, the man is burned and, you know, yelling and partying and hooray, ooh, and, we, and we burn the man. But at the end, the very last night, the temple is burned and it's burned in silence. You know, and um, and people weep and they have whatever, but the whole structure, I mean, seems to me. And again, I don't need mean to focus too much on Burning Man in particular, right? But the whole structure, because Burning Man also there were a lot more transformational festivals that sprang out of it um, in different ways. There's an excellent series on those festivals called The Bloom, uh, which is visual right, uh, film, three films about transformational festivals. And that kind of thing could, you know, if you wanna see a more institutionalized sort of thing that could come after the Abrahamic religions in the West, that could happen, right? That could be a thing that um, scales up. Uh, so, uh, and, and again, maybe I'm, you know, I'm not trying to make a prediction. I'm just trying to say like, here are some interesting sources of, of um, you know, creativity, right? Religious creativity, spiritual creativity, however one would want to phrase it. Maybe those concepts are just gone too. And maybe it's like, yeah, we do this new thing. We, this is what we do. Very you interesting know? indeed. Very interesting indeed. Okay, Eric, I won't uh, take uh, more of your time. And uh, thank you very much for joining me. Sure. Great to talk with you and um, great questions.